God's word in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5, says, Slaves, obey your masters, your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us as we seek to understand your word, that you would speak through it, that you would help us to know the joy and freedom you have in all the words of Scripture. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, for many today... Their issue with Christianity is not whether it is true or not, but whether it is moral. Many assume that while some of the teachings of the Bible are wonderful, love your neighbor, seek peace with all men, give to the poor, there are some that are oppressive and lead to harm. Those topics include, typically include what the Bible says about men and women, sexuality, and the issue of slavery. And probably many of us, as we've read through our Bible, we've come across a passage and we stop and think, did it really just say that? Like Ephesians 6, that slaves should obey their masters. Was that really there? What would I say to my coworker if they challenged me and said, why does the Bible tell slaves to obey? Why did Israel have foreign slaves? We're going to spend a whole sermon to explain what the Bible has to say about slavery because the Bible has been widely misunderstood and misapplied. Part of the misunderstanding then leads people to find verses in it offensive in and of themselves. You may have read that just this last year the head basketball coach at Texas Tech was suspended for mentioning these verses to his players. In their official statement, the university said that the coach used an inappropriate, unacceptable, and racially insensitive comment. Now, we could have a good discussion about whether a coach at a public institution should be quoting the Bible or not. And we could also talk about whether this verse was helpful to his instruction. And if the university was critiquing him for trying to impose his religious convictions, that would be one thing. Yet they didn't say any of those things. Rather, they just said these verses are inappropriate, unacceptable, and racially insensitive. And this is not in some far-off liberal neck of the country. This is in Texas, North Texas. What do we make of this? As well, I recently heard a good historian, one I find helpful, say slavery as an institution is evil, even though notoriously and nowhere in the Bible is that ever said. Well, is that true? Does the Bible notoriously never say the institution of slavery is evil? Does this mean that the Bible supports slavery? Well, you don't have to be a good historian to know that many in the South, before the Civil War, twisted the Bible to say that. And as we proceed, we have to be very careful that we don't import onto the Bible the meaning of slavery that existed in the U.S., If slavery in the United States was racial, it was almost always permanent, and it treated the slaves as no more than property. As we will see, slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament was not racial, 
It didn't have to be permanent, and it still treated slaves as humans, not property. Thus, this morning we'll see that the Bible strongly condemns what we typically think of as slavery, but it also uses the word slavery in ways that we don't consider immoral. This is a very difficult but important discussion. So today we're mainly going to just look at that first word in Ephesians 6.5, slavery. And then next week we're going to spend time, well, how do we actually apply what Paul is saying? So to look at this, we're going to first look at slavery in the Old Testament and slavery in the New Testament. We'll be turning to many passages, so warm up those fingers on a cold morning and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So to start, we have to go back to the beginning and understand what a human even is. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the ancient Near East, that's the culture that Israel came from, People considered the image of God to be upon the male king. And yet, shockingly, the Bible declares that every person, male and female, bears God's image. Thus, every person, whether rich or poor, literate or illiterate, young or old, black or white, everyone has intrinsic value. That term intrinsic is very important for it highlights that it belongs to each person naturally. The major contrast to that is what is called instrumental value, which means your value belongs as long as it helps you get what you want. A similar word to instrument is a tool, like, for example, a lawnmower. A lawnmower has instrumental value in that it allows you to cut your grass without first sharpening a scythe and going across the yard or getting out scissors and then your hands and knees and cutting it. Yet if the lawnmower breaks, you either fix it, you sell it for the metal on it, or you junk it. No one comes running to you down your alleyway saying, why did you throw your lawnmower away, thinking you've committed some great moral evil because it's just a tool. It only has value as long as it helps you do what you want. In contrast to instrumental value, the Bible clearly shows that due to every person being in God's image, we all have intrinsic value. It belongs to every person. And sadly, Americans have been rather inconsistent about whether we think humans have instrumental value or intrinsic value. I say that because on one hand, we cherish the words of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And what allowed them to say that all men or all people are created equal? Well, they didn't take a vote. They didn't take a poll and see what people thought. Rather, they continued that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet, tragically, while Americans' founders declared that, many of them also owned slaves. Americans were not just inconsistent about whether we held to intrinsic or instrument of value back then, but this is also, also still an issue today. I say that because most Americans, if you go up to them and say, do humans, should we have rights? They would all say, yes, we all know that we deserve rights. However, what about people in the womb? For example, several years ago, 
a woman writing for a major magazine, was arguing for the abortion of children, and she wrote this. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus later term, dancing around the issue trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. She then concludes, actually, they're a human, they're a child at conception. But then she continues, here's the complicated reality in which we all live. All life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same right as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Always. So thus, we again come to our, fate, our nation having this inconsistency where we declare on one hand, we all have rights, but then we turn around and for some people we go, well, actually we didn't mean everyone, in this case, the unborn. But when we start our discussion, we have to realize that since we're all made in God's image, all people have intrinsic worth and we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Well, the Old Testament says much more than just that about slavery. And even Israel, and the father of Israel, Abraham, had slaves. So turn over to Genesis 16, and we'll look at one story which involved Abraham and Sarai, or at this point, Abram and Sarai, and their slave, Hagar. Now, there you may be familiar with the story that Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham so that Hagar could bear a child. Now, the passage is silent on what Hagar thought of this. We'd be guessing, was she thrilled? Oh, I get to be with the Lord and Master. Or was she horrified? I'm being treated as an object. This goes against my values. Well, we aren't told. But the story continues that when Hagar then conceived, Sarai became jealous that God gave her a child. And look at Genesis 16, 6. There it says, But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, the passage does refer here to Hagar as her servant, but later, Genesis 21.10, when Sarah conceives, it refers to Hagar as this slave woman. But yet, notice what happens next in the story in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a string, spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that it cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. You'll notice that God cares and looks after everyone, even runaway slaves. He's not just the God of the powerful or the rich, or a certain race or gender. Rather, since we're all made in God's image, we all have value to Him. The next major story in the Old Testament comes in Exodus regarding the Egyptians' enslavement of Israel. 
where God miraculously delivers them from their slavery. And this event will be an identity-shaping event for millennia. This God tells them over and over in the Old Testament, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. God redeeming Israel from their Egyptian slavery reminded them of the goodness of God, and thus motivated them to see his loving, powerful, and caring hand in their life. For example, Deuteronomy 6 talks about what should an Israelite parent say when their child comes to them and says, well, why do we have these rules and laws? And it says, you shall say to your child, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. In Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Well, the next major parts of the Old Testament dealing with slavery are in Exodus 21. I want us to turn there, Exodus 21, and also I'll give some quotes from Leviticus 25. Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25. And as I was looking at this this week, I did a little search in my Bible program, found these verses. There are three of them that really made me sit there and scratch my head. Like, what in the world should we make of this? And I'm going to read those to you, and then we're going to talk about them. The first one, we're in Exodus 21, but the first one I'm going to read from Leviticus 25, 44, that says, As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. Thus God allowed Israel to purchase slaves from other nations. Second, two verses later, so Leviticus 25, 46, it says, You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them. Well, that sounds a lot like slavery in the United States that was permanent. So is the Bible really condoning this? Well, third, we're in Exodus 21. Look at verses 20 and 21. There it says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And we go, what? Isn't that kind of like the instrumental idea that the slave is just a tool that could be struck? You know, how, as many people ask today, could this be in the Bible and God be a moral being? Well, let's consider three things. Well, first, slavery was a preferable option to death for some of the surrounding nations. I say that because you may remember the story in Joshua 9. Israel's come in the land and they've defeated Jericho and they've defeated Ai. And so what does one group do? Well, the Gibeonites say, well, let's deceive Israel and let's become their slaves because we don't want to die. In other words, they chose to be slaves. Some of the surrounding nations did. Second, we've looked at verses, but we haven't looked at all the verses in the Old Testament regarding slavery. There are some verses in Exodus 21 that use the word for slave, but it's more like an indentured servitude in which after a set number of years you may go free. If you remember history as a teenager, you may remember that in colonial times, indentured servitude was a common practice where you would sell yourself to someone for maybe six years, five years, ten years, and they would give you something, maybe money, or they'd pay for you to travel over to the colonies. And then you were let free. And that was something that was written in the Old Testament, that they could do this. 
However, that was only for fellow Israelites, not foreigners. We'll look down at Exodus 21, 26, talking about any slave, Israelite or foreign. Exodus 21, 26 says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let his slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Thus, while a few verses before this, Exodus 21, 20 through 21, did allow the use of corporal punishment for slaves, if it left any lasting damage, the slave got to go free. As well, if we look back at that verse, verses 20 and 21, of when it talks about him striking a slave, notice it says, if the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. In other words, the murderer shall be punished and it should be considered as murder. You know, these were radical comments giving rights to slaves that had nothing like it in that time. The slaves were not like cattle. They weren't like a plower. The slaves had intrinsic value, which means, look down at verse 16, where it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone else found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So again, this is not slavery in which God is saying you can go out and kidnap someone and then sell him. It is clearly condemning that related. Let me read Deuteronomy 23:15 which says, "You shall not give up his mass to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master." So if a slave ran away and you came in possession, you were to now consider that one as free. Well, third, we need to realize that Jesus makes clear that Old Testament law relegating, or sorry, regulating something is not the same as God approving it. Let's turn to Matthew 19. We looked at this in November when we were looking at the topic of divorce, Matthew chapter 19. And in this passage, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about divorce. And they respond to one of Jesus' statements in Matthew 19, verse 7, where it says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He, Jesus, said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, not, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, Jesus responds in this context, Matthew 19, that Moses allowed divorce, he didn't command it, but from the beginning, that was not so. You know, if sin had not entered the world, there would have been no divorce. And as one author notes, as with divorce, the same was true for slavery. The rules regulating slavery were added because of the hardness of hearts. Of humanity had created a situation where slavery existed and served certain functions in their societies, but it was not that way from the beginning. In the beginning, there was human dignity and equal value resulting from the fact that every single individual, young or old, rich or poor, royal or commoner, was made in the image of God. But after the fall, the ideal society was out of the window, and God had to deal with what was actually there. Thus, from creation, the Bible clearly condemns the type of slavery in the U.S. As well, though Israel did have slavery, it was radically different than any other nation, for sometimes it merely meant indentured servitude. The other times, it still meant treating each slave as a person who couldn't be permanently harmed 
and could flee without reprisal. On top of all that, we have to realize the fact that God regulates this is not God condoning it. So next we need to turn to the New Testament and see how it expands and clarifies the Bible's teaching. So the second section, slavery in the New Testament. And when we turn there, we have to remember the context of the time. Your estimates are that about a third of the people, one third of the people in Greece and Rome were slaves. Commentators note that people became slaves for various reasons. For birth, they became slaves, their own parents selling or abandoning them, captivity in war, inability to pay debts, and voluntary attempts to better one's condition. Race was never a factor. As well, slaves did not merely do menial work, they did nearly all the work, including oversight, management in most professions. Many were educated better than their owners. They could own property, even other slaves, and were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. No slave class existed, for slaves were present in all but the highest economic and social strata, and many gained freedom by age 30, especially in urban areas. And though Roman laws were improving the conditions for slaves, they had little protection from their masters and could be punished as masters desired, even up to death. The famous philosopher Aristotle said, A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Although he later conceded a slave is a kind of possession with a soul. So, all these things need to be understood. And while there was much abuse of slaves, and it legally could happen, many masters were not regularly that way. However, no one was arguing for what we read in Ephesians 6 9, that masters should do to their slaves as they want done to them, knowing that we both have a master in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. You know, in essence, Paul's applying to the master-slave relationship, Jesus' golden rule, from Luke 6.31. As you wish that others would do to you, you do so to them. More than that, they should consider how our master, Christ, treats us. And remember that they have a master who will judge them. That's why Colossians 4.1 also says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you have a master in heaven. So why would Paul make all these radical statements that were completely contrary to their culture? Well, for one, he was steeped in the Old Testament that showed that every human, even a slave, has value. Also, because in Christ, there are no external divisions that matter before God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians so you have the Gospels and then Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Or Galatians 3.28, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thus there is historical evidence of slaves serving as deacons in churches. There is no reason why a slave could not be an elder, and in fact his master be a normal member in which the slave 
had spiritual rule over him. Along with all this, I want us to turn to the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter. It's real short, so you might miss it. It's after the T's, Titus, Timothy, Thessalonians. Oh, the order, though. Thessalonians, Titus, Timothy, Titus. And then after, sorry, before Hebrews. So it's a little book. It's very easy to mix. If you get to Hebrews, go back to your left. If you're in the T's, go to your right till you get to Philemon. Now, Philemon was a Christian who had a runaway slave named Onesimus. And it appears that Paul saw Onesimus while he was on the run, and he led Onesimus to faith in Christ. Well, Paul writes to Philemon about this, and he tells Onesimus to return to Philemon. Look at Philemon verse 15. Verse 15, he says, For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now Paul doesn't say, look, you need to let that slave know what he did is wrong. You need to make sure you punish him. No, he says that he should treat him just as he would treat the apostle Paul. Not only that he shouldn't be a slave, notice verse 21, he adds this, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Well now, what is the even more that I say? Well, if he's already tra- saying to treat him like you would treat an apostle in Christ, many, I think, rightly conclude, he's saying, I think you should free Onesimus, your slave. Well, if Paul wanted him to free him, why didn't he just say that? Why did he just say, you're a Christian, free your slaves? Well, look down at verse 14. Verse 14 says, But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul wanted Philemon to do the right thing, flowing from his heart, not just begrudgingly, because, well, Paul said I had to do this. You know, Paul wanted Philemon to give Onesimus freedom physically, like Philemon had been given freedom spiritually. Now, it's true that nowhere does the Bible call for the end of slavery, but it also doesn't call for the end of drug cartels, domestic abuse, or many other things. It's not because it says those things are okay. It's assumed they're all wrong. It's because some of those things were just clearly seen as being wrong as well. Their method for change was not political activism or more crusades. They were in a Roman Empire. They were not in representative democracies, and thus the urge or the need or even the thought that you would champion such causes wasn't something that they even considered. Also, we think the New Testament should have condemned all slavery because we assume that all slavery was like our countries, where it was race-based, lifelong, and with no rights for the slave. Yet as we've stated In their time, slavery could be as little as indentured servitude, and most could buy themselves out of it. That's why, as the adults have been studying in 1 Corinthians 7, y'all seen verse 21. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. They had, many of them, the opportunity to get out of this. Therefore, Paul's comments about Slaves obeying their masters are not given as though he's endorsing or condoning slavery. Rather, he's just teaching a Christian how to live in that situation. 
So we need to look at one more thing. So sometimes pastors say something like, okay, they're landing the plane, the sermon's ending. I'm not landing the plane yet. But it's going to sound like I am, but we're not ending yet. To go back to our beginning, is it notorious that the Bible never says the intention of slavery is evil? Well, if the conversation is American slavery, then I think the Bible very clearly does condemn it. It says you cannot steal someone and sell them. And if you do, you should be held liable and the person who did it. It says if you beat your slave and they get hurt, they should go free and many other things. Yet the word slavery, as we've noted, was so broadly used in both testaments to call it evil wouldn't have made any sense. Does it make sense to say, look, I want to be a servant of yours for five years and then I go free? That's wrong. What? I mean, if someone wants to do that, I don't see why they should be wrong in doing that. And so really, in any serious conversation like this, we have to define our terms. Well, what did the Bible mean by slavery? Yes, some aspects, it clearly condemned other aspects. Well, it was completely different than what we use that term for. That being said, these verses and ideas are so often misunderstood that I don't think it was probably very wise for the Texas Tech coach to use them. You know, his job's not to explain biblical hermeneutics or history. Thus, he probably could have conveyed the same ideas without quoting something so ripe for misunderstanding. And if a friend or family member challenges you, well, why does the Bible say this? Well, then you need to kind of do two things. First, assess, are they asking a genuine question or are they just giving another snarky kind of gotcha moment in which they don't really want to listen to the answer? And based on how you assess that, well, then you can have a discussion from that. In that, we also have to tragically realize that many people have used the name of Christ for their own agenda rather than letting Christ set the agenda for their life. In the light of this, many have said, well, look, religion, Christianity has been used for so much evil. What we need to do is, look, we want to keep the values, but we want to ditch kind of taking it all, lock, stock, and barrel. Take the good stuff and leave the bad, they say. And yet, that'd be like trying to keep a roof over your head while ditching the foundation. The roof only works as long as there's a foundation underneath supporting it. If you try to uphold the values that come from Christianity, like human rights, without believing Christianity, you're not going to keep either. The atheist Yuval Noah Harari realizes this. He realizes that, look, if you remove God, Christianity, from human rights, they won't exist. Thus, he writes, Homo sapiens, biological term for humans, have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, chimpanzees have no natural rights. You know, if we're only left with the laws of nature, then survival of the fittest would be what guides us. Now, yes, many people who don't believe in God are very moral people. And tragically, many people who claim they believe in God are very immoral. What I'm trying to convey is that there's no basis for being loving and arguing for rights if God does not exist. You may hate slavery, I may hate slavery, but what is the basis for that? You know, there's no war tribunals held. There's no UN declarations of genocide against lions as they go through ravaging herds of antelopes and deer. Well, if we're just another species, like any other species on the planet, well then why do we let the lions go doing what they're doing? Well, because they're of another order of being. They're not made in the image of God. But if we are just another species, then really, it's survival of the fittest. 
Now, of course, we would say we don't want that, but again, that's an opinion. Why would that be true? Well, moving to the conclusion, many will say, well, thankfully that's all in the past. If only that were true. Sadly, there's much slavery that exists in the world today, often called human trafficking. You know, no one is standing up publicly defending it. It's not out in the open, but behind the scenes, it's very real. Those who work to end this estimate that there's between 20 and 40 million people in the world who are enslaved, and the profits from it are $150 billion annually. Now, this isn't just some problem like way out there, like you go to those countries in Asia, you know those ports, though, yeah, that's where it, no. In Texas, roughly 300,000 people are estimated to be enslaved here in our own state. And as we're able, we should follow Proverbs 31, 8, 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So this means being faithful wherever you are. You know, most of us are not in places of authority and influence, but we have friends, loved ones, co-workers, neighbors. Who knows when God might put us in a place where we might be able to help someone whose life is in danger. Perhaps we'll be like Corey Ten Boom, who, humanly speaking, lived a boring life as a single woman. And that is until she was thrust into being one of the leaders in the German resistance and helping Jews be free. You know, the question is, are we going to be faithful all the time? Or maybe you'll be like Christopher Melli in 1997. He was doing his usual rounds as the night guard at the Union Bank of Switzerland. And as he did his rounds, he came across books that were going to be burned in the incinerator the next day. And as he started to flip through them, he realized they were books detailing Things that the Nazis had taken from Jews, and then when the Nazis were destroyed, the bank just assumed all of the wealth. Well, he took the books and turned them over, and then he had to flee for his life. Because the value of everything that was still kept in the bank was $1.25 billion. You buy know, human standards, Corey Ten Boom, Christopher Melling. They're rather insignificant people. I mean, a bank guard, a single woman in her 50s. I mean, who are they? don't matter. And yet, they were faithful at the moment when God brought this serious event in front of their life. But it wasn't that they go, I have a serious event. They chose to be faithful each and every day. And most of us live unimportant lives, in human opinion. But everything we do matters to God. And no matter where you're living, we can all fight against the greatest slavery. This is what I read of at the beginning, John 8, 34 through 36. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Over and over, the New Testament refers to our sin, not just as some isolated bad deeds that we do here and there, but rather sin is a recognition. It's a showing, a sign of our captivity to its power. Thus, Titus 2.3 talks about being slaves to much wine, or Titus 3.3 describes how before we were Christians, we were slaves to various passions. 2 Peter 2.19 warns of false teachers who promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that they are enslaved. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus came and took on human flesh so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Thus, we had read for us earlier Romans 6, 15-23 that ended, Now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, I hope we've seen that the Bible's not immoral at all. There are passages which at first glance make us go, is that really there? And there's some passages that I don't have a great answer for. And you may have thought what I've said today haven't been the best answers. However, I do believe once you dive in, you'll realize that the Bible is radically different than anything else. The Bible condemns the slavery that we think of, and it gives us a moral foundation so that we consistently do that. And more than that, Jesus came to bring an end of all slavery. Jesus said, if I set you free, you will be free indeed. Do you know the freedom that he came to bring? Let's pray. Lord, in this sinful world, there are such horrific things, such as people capturing and putting into slavery others. Lord, we grieve at the tragedy of this sin that has existed throughout time. Lord, you know what's going on in Texas, in the United States, in this world, and so would you rend the heavens and come down? Would you bring freedom to people? Lord, would you bring freedom spiritually? Would you help people to realize their enslavement to sin and that if they trust your Son, they shall be free indeed? Lord, Help us to be faithful each day. Many days seemingly unimportant and mundane, but they each one matter to you. So would we be faithful to honor you and live a life that's faithful each day. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.